0: Brenda Quigley, who has her master's in geology and does consulting in the wine business on geological topics. Hello, how are you?
2: Hello, I'm doing very well.
0: It's nice to see you.
2: Nice to see you too.
0: Interestingly, most of your family are geologists.
2: Yes, yes, they are. My uh, dad is a geologist and I have three brothers. Two of them are geologists. One of them is married to a geologist.
0: What's it like at the house when you all get together? Are there like a lot of hammers around and stuff? And
2: There are a lot of hammers. Uh, most people, I realize, don't decorate with rocks. But, uh, <laughs> you know, my family has rocks everywhere.
0: And how is it that you all became geologists? I mean, was it like a group ordination? Did they line you all up together and give it at one go?
2: Yeah, no, not at all. My my dad was a geologist, and growing up, none of us really had Almost any interest in it. Uh, I remember him pointing things out to me and just not paying attention at all. I think all of us tried to be biologists first. That was kind of our original goal was to, to do biology. It always sounded exciting. We liked the idea of working outside and working with living things. And I did my undergrad in uh, marine biology. I had these grand ideas of being out on the water and seeing wildlife everywhere. and the reality of it is, is you spend a lot of time looking into a microscope Uh, whereas I think with geology the expectation is less exciting you're talking about rocks so it it doesn't sound like a lot of fun but when you actually go and do field work in geology you talk about big questions you talk about how the earth was formed you talk about how landscapes were formed
0: I think a lot of times in in wine interviews people say like you know what's the wine that got you into wine yeah that that stock (laughs) question so what was the rock that got you you know
2: It was just an introductory geology course that I took in college. I kind of took it as almost like a joke. Like I thought it would be fun to call my family and ask questions, you know, like as I was studying. And I remember when I was looking at schools with my family, we drove down the coast. We drove from Seattle all the way to San Diego, me and my parents. And driving down south, I spent the entire time looking out the window to my right at the ocean. And my dad spent the entire drive looking to the left, looking at the rocks and how the cliffs were changing and how the landscape was changing. And about two weeks into taking this introductory geology course, I drove down from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles and I realized that I didn't look to my right once. As soon as I had a few keys to understanding more about the landscape, I was just as, just as excited by the things going on in the cliffs as I had thought that I would be about the water.
0: How many times have you wrecked your automobile? <laughs>
2: yeah. No, it's actually a real thing. <laughs> it's really dangerous driving with a bunch of geologists. It's terrifying.
0: <laughs> Originally, you were thinking maybe the oil industry might be your, your game.
2: In graduate school, the oil companies recruit pretty heavily for graduate students. and So I early on got involved in a recruitment program. So as I was finishing grad school, it was looking like everything was set up for me to be accepting a job and by what turned out to be a very fortunate event before I, I got my official offer there were kind of whisperings and verbal offers and, and it was looking like it was going to happen uh, the company went on a company-wide hiring freeze and so here I kind of had this plan laid out for what I was going to do when I finished grad school and a lot of that involved this job that I was planning on taking and that kind of just you know within minutes got totally changed. So from there I I kind of wanted to reassess what I wanted to do. I wasn't necessarily interested in oil and I wasn't interested in going out and searching for more oil jobs. Uh, I for a minute I, you know, kind of fallback plan was like, Okay, well, I'll work for the family then, you know, most of my family was working together at the time and so I, I took a a job for them out in South Dakota, so I drove out there and was working with my brother for the first time on an official job. And my brother's wonderful, and we never fight or argue. And we, within a couple weeks of that job, we got into one of the only fights we've ever gotten into in our adult lives. All of those little childhood issues that you have with a sibling that all came out at once. And it had to do with all of these weird competitive things that normally aren't in our nature at all, just kind of Came up to the surface and...
0: Did you ever use the term, you've always liked sedimentary rocks more than me? Did you ever?
2: Yeah. No, it was, you only got interested in sedimentary rocks once I started. (laughs) I mean, it was that, it was that sad. (laughs) And I mean, it was, it was kind of traumatizing, actually. And we ended up cutting... I I shouldn't say this because it's so unprofessional, but you know the the job itself kind of got cut short early because we just kind of (laughs) had to recover from you know what had happened, and and so basically
0: six billion years of history we're gonna shrink that yeah Yeah, we're gonna (laughs) lop (laughs) off a couple of the billion
2: (laughs) yeah and so we ended up leaving early we like packed up our campsite we drove from South Dakota I dropped him off in denver where he was living at the time and i was still so mad that we got there at night and i was so mad that i just unpacked his stuff and i kept driving and i drove back to santa barbara i had absolutely no idea what i was going to do when i got there i ended up driving kind of until really late in the night and uh slept in my car and i i mean i'm i'm not kidding i had a dream that i called a friend of mine who worked in the wine industry and that they got me a job I woke up the next morning and I just started driving. I didn't think of it and I'm sitting there going, "What am I going to do? I don't have a job. How am I going to, you know, pay my bills?" And I remembered that dream and I was like, "Oh, that friend actually does work in the wine industry." And basically while I was driving, I called him. I'd been a member of different, you know, like wine clubs in grad school and spent a lot of time thinking about it and enjoying it and basically within a week I I got a job at a tasting room in Santa Barbara and that was kind of my savior.
0: And that was with Seth Coonan and his wife?
2: Yep. I mean, Seth was just an incredible human being who loved to connect other people and he loved to build people up. He really welcomed me into their world and was really encouraging of saying, you know, this is something that that people need and that they could use and that is relevant. And that Christmas Eve, I stayed in Santa Barbara to work instead of going back to visit my family. And so they invited me to their home. For Christmas Eve dinner,
0: does that mean your family took your brother's side in the in the (laughs) argument? (laughs) It would sound like it kind of implies.
2: (laughs) No, no, it was things cooled off. Luckily, by then, but but yeah, that 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 is what it sounds like. I was going to Christmas Eve dinner at Seth's, and I knew that there were these really important wine people going to be there. So I got there early, and then within fifteen minutes. Raj Parr and Ted Vance came, they were the other guests, and Seth said, Brenna, this is Raj, this is Ted, Ted, Raj, this is Brenna, she works for us downstairs, and also she's a geologist. Their jaws dropped, and they said, "Oh, are you serious? We have so many questions for you. And the whole night, they just kind of sat there bombarding me with questions about these things, these concepts that like had never been quite clear to them, and that was kind of it. And I realized that, you know, there are these, these things that people should know kind of more precise answers to because it really helps their legitimacy in talking about something that's really important to them.
0: I know so little about geology. I actually had to Google search it to figure out how many O's were in the word. Because you know, <laughs> I was a little off on yeah. how many it might be. So maybe you could break down for me some of the concepts that I would need to sort of engage with the topic. Mm-hmm. The first thing I would ask you is, what is soil?
2: Soil is the unconsolidated cover of the earth. Soil has a mineral component and an organic component. The definition of soil also includes water and air. An average soil has about maybe 45% of it is a mineral component, 5% is organic, and then that other 50% is water and air that are are kind of transient within the soil. They exist in in the pore spaces, and they tend to exchange for each other.
0: And how does soil come to be? I mean, where does it come from?
2: That mineral component is completely derived from rocks. It can be derived from rocks that are right there, what we would call residual parent material. So the bedrock itself is actually forming the soil, or it can come from rocks that were transported from elsewhere. The main backbone of the soil is this mineral component.
0: Is soil decomposed rock? or?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's decomposed, broken down pieces of rocks. As the rock breaks down, it breaks down both physically and also chemically. So there's a physical aspect of a rock going from a big chunk of something to smaller pieces. But then also while that happens, it's undergoing chemical weathering too. So the minerals themselves are changing.
0: So is there soil in the world that's not derived from rock?
2: There's a very rare type of soil that's kind of a, an accumulation of other material, kind of like peat, like an accumulation of organic material that builds up over time. But almost all soil, the structure of it, has to come from rock. Anything that has clay or sand or silt comes originally from a rock.
0: And you mentioned the word minerals. And what does that mean in a geology context?
2: To a geologist, a mineral has a very strict definition. Uh, A mineral has to be solid, has to be inorganic, and it has to have a definite chemical composition, a chemical formula, and it also has to have kind of a known crystal structure. So, water is not a mineral, but ice is.
0: So, the minerals compose the rocks, then the rocks decompose into the soil.
2: Uh, Yeah. A rock forms as kind of an aggregation of minerals and also, you know, non-minerals, things that are kind of in that gray area. And then a rock will break down usually into mineral components. And then eventually those minerals will then chemically break down into maybe a different type of mineral as well. So when we talk about, you know, clay minerals, that would be usually a result of the chemical weathering of a parent mineral.
0: So a mineral can become a different kind of mineral over time.
2: Yeah. So maybe the best example of that would be the formation of clay minerals. And so what happens is when you have a mineral at the Earth's surface that's not necessarily stable when it's put into contact with water and air, it'll actually chemically break down into something that is more stable. So for example, feldspar in a granite will break down into certain types of clay minerals. And usually it's, it's just the introduction of air, you know, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and water. Actually, the weathering of rocks is one of the major sinks for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that weathering process actually takes, requires CO2, and then builds it into the, the structures of the minerals that it forms there are lots of really great papers on how plate tectonics, the building of new rocks and then, you know, their eventual weathering does control global climate change on a millions to tens of millions of years scale.
0: If I were to understand better about what mother rock or bedrock is vis-a-vis soil, what is the relationship? Because I think a lot of, People who haven't studied geology understand this idea that there's layers of soil and there's topsoil and that there's bedrock. But I feel like when conversations start, it's often unclear which one they're talking about.
2: Yeah, absolutely, that does get really confusing. So, in the simplest sense, if we're talking about a soil that is a residual soil, again, to to use that term again. So, if we're talking about a residual soil. Uh, we're talking about a soil that is formed by the degradation of the bedrock. And so you can imagine kind of from the bottom up, so from the bedrock up to the surface, that rock is kind of weathering and breaking down and forming that mineral component. But then if we look from the top down, so from where there's organic life and stuff on the surface of the earth, that's contributing air and water and organic matter that are kind of mixing with the bedrock below. And as those two processes happen, coming from opposite directions, they're going to create different layers, so different stages of the breakdown of the bedrock and the formation of soil.
0: So I think a lot of times in my mind I would confuse minerals with elements. Yeah, I would think of iron or magnesium as a mineral, Mm -hmm. but you've already explained how a mineral is a crystallized form of Mm -hmm. and so where do elements fit into that picture?
2: Basically, elements are the building blocks of minerals. So minerals are more something uh, like, let's use quartz for an example. Quartz is a mineral and its chemical formula is SiO2, so it's a Solid crystalline structure of silica and oxygen. Uh, So, like we said, ice is H2O. So, you know, hydrogen and oxygen are elements that, when they are chemically bonded together in a solid form, form ice.
0: So, are there families of rocks? Are there groupings?
2: Yeah. We mostly talk about three types of rocks there's igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic. So igneous rocks are any sort of rock that formed from molten rock. And so if you can imagine molten rock traveling through the Earth's crust, if that molten rock has the time to solidify and cool beneath the surface of the Earth, then it usually cools quite slowly and it develops actual large crystals that you can see with, you know, with your eyes. So the best example of that would be granite. So granite is what we call an intrusive igneous rock. But then all of those intrusive igneous rocks also have an extrusive or a volcanic component. So they can have the exact same chemical composition, but their texture will be totally different. So if a melt that has the composition of granite erupts onto the surface of the earth, it cools really, really quickly and then has really small crystals, and we would call that a rhyolite. A basalt is another type of extrusive volcanic rock, specifically one that has a high iron and magnesium content, compared to the kind of other end member of that, the rhyolite, would have a high silica content.
0: What are the other families of rocks?
2: There are metamorphic rocks. So if you basically take any type of rock and bury it beneath the Earth's surface and expose it to high temperature and pressure, that's actually another time that one mineral will form into another. So if you imagine you're, you're putting something deep into the Earth, it's going to try to take its most compact form. It's going to be most stable in its most compact form.
0: So that's how marble would get created.
2: Yeah, exactly. Things will recrystallize. Metamorphic rocks are confusing because you usually refer to them in terms of where they started. But generally, you would talk about things like slate, which is a very low-pressure, low-temperature metamorphic rock. And then schist is kind of if you increase the temperature and pressure and you get that kind of shiny plate like we say foliated layered look of kind of shiny platy micaceous minerals that is what we'd call a schist and then the next level up from that the minerals will start to reorganize themselves into dark and light bands with increased temperature and pressure again and we would call that gneiss nice. some people say gneiss but if you're Speaking English. This host, yeah. Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> right. yeah, apparently.
2: If you're speaking English, you say nice. I think if you're in Germany, you would say nice
0: but... Oh oh it is. Are you just <laughs> yeah. making a joke? That's a joke. No, that's real. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> that sounds almost like a joke. <laughs> I
2: know. <laughs> it's another way where it's just kind of like unfairly complicated. In English, the word is nice. In German, they use the same word, but they pronounce it nice
0: So the city in the south of France, how do you say that?
2: Ah, uh, nice.
0: Okay, just making sure that I didn't have that one <laughs> I wrong <think>. too.
2: <laughs>
0: I hope. So, what are the differences between those in terms of the mineral side? So, slate, and then mm-hmm. schist, and then a word that Germans call gneiss.
2: Right. The biggest thing is that the metamorphic minerals themselves will grow larger. So, if you look at a slate, you'll see it has just like a, barely has like a sheen to it, and that's the early formation of... Of those micaceous platy minerals. Schist, uh, they get bigger and you get that, we say schistose or schistosity, that texture, which is really important and becomes really important as something to form soil with because it creates space for water and air to move into and further break down the rock that then the roots can then actually kind of travel through those cracks.
0: And Breakdown is where soil is, right? I mean, that's yep, You're what it forming
2: is. soil. You're directly forming the mineral component of soil. So then, the other major rock type family would be sedimentary rocks, and those are just rocks made up of other pieces of rocks. So, you know, sandstone is made up of little grains of sand. Claystone or mudstone is made up of clay or mud that's you know been solidified into rock. Limestone is another. It's more of a chemical or a biochemical sedimentary rock. And generally, it's made up of the shells of other organisms. So limestone is a sedimentary rock that has a significant calcium carbonate component. And usually, it's the shells of those organisms that come together to form a solidified limestone rock.
0: Is there one more silt, right? Doesn't silt play into it?
2: Yep. So that's another, you can have a silt stone. So when we talk about clay, silt, sand, uh, we're just talking about grain sizes of rocks. And so if you have a dominant grain size that then gets solidified into a rock, you would go, that's a silt stone.
0: So there's different forms of sort of the same rock.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, what happened, what's confusing about that is so, so yes, you can take a granite and as it decomposes, like you see in Beaujolais in the Northern Rhone, you'll see like a granitic sand. And so you'll actually see all of those components of the granite rock. They're just unconsolidated in the form of sand. Like I said, some minerals are more stable than others, so they preferentially chemically weather. So usually when you get to, you know, maybe a transported material of sand, by the time that it's broken down that much, you've lost a lot of those other minerals and you're left with the hardest ones. So a lot of sand is mainly composed of silica or quartz, and that's because it's such a hard, resistant mineral that it, it still remains, whereas other things have weathered into clay minerals that have then been carried off somewhere else. If the weathering is happening right there in place, like it often does in Beaujolais and the northern Rhone, you see all of those components there. They don't get carried away in time because the soil is so shallow that the rocks are weathering. In place,
0: clay seems like it's a uh, complex.
2: Clay is the smallest grain size that a piece of rock could break down into, and like I said, by the time things break down that much, a lot of times they've actually had to chemically turn into something else. So that would be the group of clay minerals. Uh, you can get clay particles of silica just because silica or quartz is such a hard mineral that it can remain intact all the way down to the tiny 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 size of a clay grain but most of the time they're going to weather down into a type of clay mineral that are usually these teeny tiny microscopic little plates so they're flat and those flat plates then have an immense amount of surface area compared to other things and that surface area is what makes it chemically active in the soil
0: does that imply that the origin of what is decomposing into clay means that there's different kinds of clay.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. So like I said, clay can be any type of rock that breaks down into that small of a grain size. There are different families of clays and they're a little complicated. There are swelling clays and non-swelling clays. And I think there's a big, although quite complicated technical conversation to have about the role of different clay minerals in the quality of the soil. But It's a little complicated. I would say the two major families of clay are going to be the grain size type of clay. So just purely something that's really, really small versus an actual clay mineral clay.
0: I guess because I'm dumb, I am having a hard time understanding the difference.
2: No, it's really confusing. Maybe here's the best way to describe it. So I said before that it's the surface area that is most important in order for a grain Of rock or of a mineral to be able to be chemically active in the soil. So, if you imagine a gram of sand, the surface area on those minerals is going to have about the same amount of surface area as like two lines of text on the page of a book. If you take a gram of silt, the surface area of that is going to be equal to about four pages of a book. Just because those grains are smaller, there's much more surface area. So grain-sized clay, so spherical pieces of quartz, would have the surface area in one gram of about the wall of a large house. And so then, if you compare that grain-sized kind of spherical clay to the actual plates, the flattened plates of clay minerals, the surface area in one gram of clay minerals would then be equal to, I think it's like, All of the walls, the floors, and the ceilings of a large house. So you've just really exponentially increased the surface area and basically the the potential chemical activity of that substance.
0: A lot of times when I look at some of the major wine regions of the world, whether that be Burgundy or the right bank of Bordeaux or Rioja or parts of Napa or Dundee Hills in Oregon or numerous other places, the topic of clay comes up Mm -hmm. you know it's just a four-letter word (laughs) but your suggestion is that what the clay is interacting with is also what the clay is from
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so if i could just understand better how clay differs around the world or if it doesn't
2: i think that that's something that actually there needs to be more research on when i've talked to other geologists those who have been really supportive of this kind of research have said, I think you need to look into the specific families of clay minerals and if they're varying from region to region, because that would make a huge implication on the texture of the soil, on the chemical composition of the soil, on the soil's ability to interact with the vine. What's difficult is that clay minerals are so, so small, we can't see them. We we can't even really understand what they are with a regular microscope. It requires really high, high resolution, high powered microscopes we're talking about something that's less than 0.002 millimeters in diameter. So it requires a different type of research to be able to understand those families of minerals, but I think that that would be an interesting, very likely, a very interesting contribution to the discussion.
0: So a lot of times in the wine world I hear about marl. Mm -hmm. And what is marl?
2: So marl is a mixture of Clay and limestone. So it's kind of uh, one way to describe it would just be kind of like a dirty limestone.
0: And does that mean that the limestone is breaking down into clay?
2: Yes. So again, it's this confusing idea where the limestone itself is breaking down into smaller clay pieces, but it's also probably going to be mixed with those clay minerals that were a part of the limestone or coming from somewhere else and are giving it more of a complex, kind of muddier texture.
0: And then speaking of mud, what is silt?
2: So silt is just that intermediate grain size between sand and clay. Uh, We can't really see the difference between silt and clay. And the only way that field geologists can really understand the difference is actually their texture like in your mouth. So the only time that I will really see geologists put dirt or rocks in their mouth is that if you put silt in your mouth, it has a little bit of a grit to it. Whereas clay, true clay, will be kind of like silky, muddy, like pottery clay feeling to it.
0: Sounds like blind tasting for geologists really sucks.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot less fun than the wine side of things.
0: So I feel like in the wine world, some of the key things that I hear about in terms of soil types in the world are limestone, clay, sand, granite, basalt, slate, and schist. So if I were to understand, Each of those better. It sounds like really some of them are subsets of the other. The definition is based on the size of it. Mm -hmm. But if I were to understand those topics better, what should I be thinking about?
2: I think when I think about families of soil as related to wine, they really kind of break down into two major categories for me. So there's soils that form from the actual residual parent material, so from the breakdown of bedrock versus those that form from transported material from elsewhere. And I think that most soils in the world are based on transported parent material. So it's based on kind of alluvial sediments that have been built up somewhere that have a lot of clay and a lot of organic material.
0: So alluvial is it's been moved by a river or something Mm -hmm, else.
2: And that's really good for crops and corn and things like that. And one of the things that really drew me to the wine industry in terms of terroir is that I think it's this kind of unique plant that actually really thrives on residual soils. There is a major kind of understanding between these residual broken down in situ pieces of bedrock that are forming soils versus these transported materials. And so from there, you can then kind of take a look at what that residual material is. So based on rock type, so maybe there are volcanic rocks that would have a certain texture. Things like schist and slate have a certain texture. They have a foliation to them. They have breakage planes that allow the roots to kind of explore deeper into the earth. And then there's things like sedimentary rocks. So most notably in the wine world, limestone that then have this calcium carbonate backbone to them. That's very unique from anything else.
0: And you feel like vines do well in those kind of soils?
2: I think so, yeah. I think it's because the vines actually don't want all of the nutrients that other crops do in order to do well. And especially in order to make quality interesting. Wine, they want some sort of a balance between struggle and thriving.
0: One of the things I've heard is that vine roots create their own soil. And is there any truth to that concept?
2: Yeah, so I think that that's referring to this idea that the roots themselves will actually excrete acid, so they'll kind of pump some hydrogen, some acid into the soil, and what that does is the clay minerals that I was talking about before, they're so small and their little plates are actually statically charged, so the nutrients in the soil kind of cling on to these clay minerals. And when the vine pumps out hydrogen, the hydrogen is stronger than the charge of those nutrients, so they actually exchange them. It's called cation exchange capacity. And the hydrogen will take the place of that nutrient, and then the clay will give up the nutrient, something like sodium or calcium or potassium, and then the vine can then access it. The cation exchange capacity is going to be very dependent on the pH of the soil and the texture of the soil. So for someone in viticulture, they're going to want to be balancing all of these factors so that the pH and the texture make it possible for the vine to do its thing.
0: pH of soil varies a lot, right?
2: Mm -hmm. It usually varies depending on the parent material itself and if it's mixed with anything. So the best example would be limestone has a very alkaline or basic pH compared to volcanic rocks like basalt granite and others that would then have a very acidic ph Selex or chert is something that would also have a very acidic ph especially in comparison to the basic ph of limestone chalky soils
0: i could be wrong but i have this idea that when i have acidic soils i get more basic wines and when i have basic soils i get more acidic wines
2: yeah, I, I've observed the same thing, and I, you know, over and over again see that. I'm, I'm not quite entirely sure why.
0: I feel like a lot of times that the age of a certain piece of limestone is discussed. How should I understand different ages of rocks?
2: That's a really important concept. And also what's interesting about it is that throughout Earth's history, there are times when the formation of certain types of rocks is globally really significant. And so it actually does mean something, like when you talk about Jurassic limestones, you're referring to a point in Earth's history when limestone was forming all over the planet. And so when you talk about Jurassic-aged rocks, it's not wrong to have an inclination to say that that could be a type of limestone or a specific type of limestone that, that was forming during that setting at the time. But it could also be, you know, there's lots of limestones forming globally in the Jurassic period. If a volcano erupted during the Jurassic period, that would also be called Jurassic-aged as well.
0: Oh, okay. And It could be a basalt Jurassic and it could be a limestone Jurassic. Yep. And I would imagine that different ages would have different live critters and then those live critters would become fossils and then that would become calcium carbonate.
2: Yeah, exactly. So in certain environments, certain animals are going to do better and then they're going to be fossilized more throughout time different species evolve and sometimes those animals themselves are restricted to a certain period of time that you would then see only in that age as well
0: something you referred to before that is a catalyst for change is water and we've talked about basic and acidic soils and it seems like something else that changes that ph of the soil is rain mm-hmm. so if you have more rain what ends up happening to the soil
2: It's going to depend a lot on the texture of the soil. If the soil has a lot of clay in it, the clay can actually kind of absorb that water and cling onto it and hold it in the soil, versus if there's a lot of sand or silt that can't quite hold onto the water, it's going to drain right through it. And then depending on how much clay there is, if there's not much clay to hold onto the water and the water's draining through it really fast and it's slightly acidic, it can actually grab on to a lot of the nutrients in the soil that the clay is kind of weakly holding on to and carry it away. So it can, it can really deplete the nutrient content of the soil if the texture isn't set up for it to be in balance.
0: So I think a lot of times when we think about different places where vines are grown, some of them are very steep and some of them are quite flat. And in both kinds, you can have good wines. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it seems to depend on soil type Mm -hmm. as being a factor in that.
2: The setting for terroir and for vineyards is all related to kind of the geologic history of that area. So it's not, you know, it's not a coincidence that certain regions have certain slopes that are maybe concave or convex or very steep or very shallow. Uh, You're actually looking at how different rocks are weathering and eroding and that is then translated into what shapes the landscape. For example, at Chablis is kind of the best example that I have. It's all Jurassic limestone, but at the top of the slope, you have this really, really hard, resistant to weathering, Portlandian limestone. And then below it, you have the Kimmeridgian marls, this kind of softer, fossiliferous, really easily breakable limestone. And that combination you're basically getting what we call a cap rock at the top of the slope and then right below it the river kind of cuts right through it and you get this exposed relationship of the hard rock on top the softer rock below it and that softer rock really gets to kind of erode and form into a little bit of of like a belly in the soil so a concave shape to that slope. And that's created by the relationship of the cap rock on top, the softer rock below. And it actually allows for a slight accumulation of soil, of that kind of marley clay that forms nutrient-rich soil, mixed with the hard little pieces of of scree of that hard rock that kind of rain down on top of it, that contributes to a lighter texture that doesn't make the soil too sticky or wet or heavy or hard to aerate
0: so basically the type of rock can also determine the shape that we find it in
2: yeah exactly you see these kind of long concave slopes in burgundy that are you know this really classic limestone relief and then you go into Beaujolais and you suddenly see these really rounded granitic hills so the type of rock is really controlling what the landscape looks like
0: So if I were to look at France, big picture-wise, and the history of the geology of France, what should I think about for France as a country?
2: So what's really incredible about France is that it has all sorts of different types of rocks. It has almost every type of rock that a geologist could imagine. And they're all put into certain places based on their geologic history. So it's not random. They're not randomly scattered about the surface of France like Pieces of rocks on the ground, they all got there through a very precise geologic history. So, the history of the geology of France starts uh, over 300 million years ago. Um, Most people know that Pangaea was a supercontinent that existed in the past. But what a lot of people don't know is that there are actually several different supercontinents in the history of the Earth. So, Pangaea was just the most recent. And that makes sense if you think about, you know, Continents are basically moving around a sphere. So, if they continue moving for billions of years, they're going to crash into each other and then eventually they're going to start moving apart and then they'll crash into each other again. So, basically, the oldest rocks in France, the Massif Central and the Massif Amorican, are ancient, ancient mountain ranges that were formed by the assembly of Pangaea. So, before Pangaea existed as a supercontinent, It was separate continents that all kind of came together during these, you know, relatively dramatic continental collisions and formed these really ancient mountain ranges. Sometime after, 300 million years ago, Pangaea started to break apart. And so now we're getting into the formation of the Paris Basin. So the Paris Basin is when we talk about, you know, Champagne, Chablis, Sancerre are all a part of the Paris Basin. And they formed during the Jurassic period, so around 200 million years ago. And it's not a coincidence that, you know, whenever you see little recreations, drawings of dinosaur times, that it always looked really kind of hot and muggy and tropical. And that's because during this time, the temperature of the Earth was actually higher. It was a really warm time in Earth's history. And there were no glaciers at the poles, so sea level was really high. So if you imagine Pangaea started breaking apart, and all of that land that just newly separated got flooded with water. And it was in these massive amounts of really shallow, warm waters that we started getting the formation of limestone. And this is why the Jurassic period in time is usually associated with limestone, is because a huge amount of the Earth's continents were actually flooded with water. As they started moving into their present day positions. And so throughout time, you were getting layers and layers and layers of limestones building up on top of each other as sea level would rise and fall. So that kind of forms the Paris Basin. So you get different layers of limestones that are exposed at the surface today. And then the last thing that happened was the Alpine, we call it the Alpine Orogeny or the building of the Alps. And that happened when. As the continents have separated apart, and now in certain places they're crashing into each other again. So as Africa crashes into Europe, we start building the Alpine mountains. And this basically caused a reverberation of different tectonic events to happen throughout France. So a lot of basically faulting and folding and and redistributing of things. And that's really where you get the, the complexity of Burgundy geology is essentially Paris Basin sediments that have then been kind of broken up and redistributed and reorganized. It used to be that Burgundy was actually continuous with the Jura, but due to this faulting of the Alpine orogeny, they basically got separated. A big block in between them dropped and separated them out. But that's why when you're standing on the slope in Burgundy on a clear day, you can look out over in Jura, where you're actually going to be on rocks of the same age that formed at the same time.
0: So if I were to look at some of those key formations of France, where do they correspond to wine regions?
2: So kind of starting at the beginning with the, the ancient rocks. So these are going to be rocks that are mostly granites, a lot of metamorphic gneisses and schists and things like that. They are concentrated around the Massif Amorican, where you get the Muscadet in the western Loire, and then the Massif Central, where you get the northern Rhône Valley and Beaujolais, Uh, and then just slightly younger rocks, so the Jurassic limestones of the Paris Basin. The younger limestones would be basically Champagne, and the central Loire Valley have a lot of similarities in the age and composition of those limestones. And then farther along the outer rim of the Paris Basin, we get the Kimmeridgian chain. So Southern Champagne, the Aube, Chablis, and Sancerre are all along those Kimmeridgian rocks. And then you also get the rocks that have been then redistributed and kind of deformed by the creation of the Alps. So that's Burgundy and the Jura that have, uh, are mostly... Not entirely, but mostly limestone rocks that have been heavily faulted. But you also get Alsace, where you actually get kind of a, this really interesting patchwork of the ancient rocks of the massifs and the Jurassic limestones that have been kind of mixed up with each other. Another Alpine region is the Savoie. So, of course, it's in the foothills of the Alps, and so it has this huge mix of the ancient rocks that have been re-brought up to the surface. And then in the south and southwest, you get the Aquitaine Basin, which is essentially another similar basin to the Paris Basin, except it has a major input from the Pyrenees Mountains. So kind of a younger, more acidic, more silicious, we would say, more silica-rich type of alluvium. And so that would be where you get the Languedoc and Bordeaux. And then of course, the southern Rhône and the south of France. So you get kind of this major output from the Rhône Valley of those kind of younger alluvial sediments that are flowing through the Graubins.
0: And if I were to think about champagne, what should I be thinking about?
2: Champagne is more chalk. The chalk is just a deeper water equivalent of limestone. So it's essentially made up of the skeletons, the calcium carbonate skeletons of little planktons that live in the water column. And then as they die, they kind of rain down and form a layer of very, usually very soft, white, porous limestone rock. So chalk has a really impressive ability to hold water because it is very porous. It has a lot of pore space. And then also give that water to the plant when it needs it. So the plant can kind of draw from this chalk reservoir, which is a major factor for champagne.
0: The Loire Valley is a big place, but I mean, if I were to think about it, maybe moving from Sancerre to the coast.
2: So, Sancerre is on the exact same Kimmeridgian marls as Chablis. It's on what we call the Kimmeridgian chain. There's kind of like a rung. Uh, The Paris Basin is kind of set up like nested dishes where you kind of get these rims of different layers of so rocks like exposed. So like the bowls in this? your
0: kitchen when you put it into a bigger bowl and then you put yeah, that into yeah. a bigger bowl. Exactly,
2: exactly. Um, So yeah, and it is kind of a basin, so it's kind of a little depression in the middle and then the, the rings of it on the outside are continuous.
0: The Loire is catching a number of those?
2: Yes, the Loire spans several of them and then along it you get uh, the Kimmeridgian chain where you basically go from southern champagne that ob- okay. is connected along this rung of Kimmeridgian rocks to Chablis, which is then connected to Sancerre. So they all kind of form a little arc of really the exact same rocks. I've been to all of those places that are identical. So you would see those typical Portlandian and Kimmeridgian limestones. And then as you move towards the coast, you move into kind of more of a, a shallow water equivalent of limestone. So it actually has a little bit of input from the land. And then as you move farther you actually get into the Mesifamorican, which are ancient granite and volcanic metamorphic rocks.
0: You've already talked about Chablis, but what should I think about for Chablis?
2: Chablis is defined by two types of Jurassic limestone. There's the hard Portlandian cap rock at the top of the slope, and then the softer Kimmeridgian fossiliferous marl right below that. And the cap rock kind of protects the slope enough to allow the marl to erode into a slight little kind of belly that accumulates soil and clay. And then the Portlandian also gives a little input on top with kind of that harder rock, maybe sandier, rockier gravelly material that gives more texture to the soil and kind of balances out the heavy clay at the bottom.
0: And so as you move from Chablis to the Cote d'Or, what changes?
2: As you move from Chablis to the Cote d'Or, you're really getting a much bigger influence of that alpine effect. So you see a lot more faulting and a lot of the rocks just get kind of jumbled up. They get repeated because they've been kind of folded and faulted along the slope and essentially very, very complex. Chablis is this really kind of beautiful, simple layer cake geology that you can kind of take a really close look at the difference between the Grand Cruze and the Premier Cru's and how they're related to the rock types that they're on and the slope aspects and the position on the slope. Because everything's just kind of laid out in this like beautiful, relatively simple fashion. Uh, the Couture is kind of like you take that, you add a whole bunch of other different rocks and you kind of throw it in a blender and you get this big mix of very complex things, but the relationships are all still there. They're just much less clear cut.
0: And so what are some of the key factors in that for the D'Or?
2: So let's start with a regular kind of layer cake of geologic layers that are changing slightly from one to the next. So one factor that makes cotor more complicated is that there are more layers. There are more different types of things that have very small differences one to the next to very big differences. There are Really, all still limestones, but they vary in their composition, they vary in their hardness, they vary in their iron content, things like that. And then on top of it, all of those different layers have been broken up and redistributed all over the slope. So the rock type changes in very short distances from one to the next. So it's harder to link a lot of things together because the rock type is changing. Uh, There are also then the combs or the small alluvial valleys that break up the slope and they give a huge distribution of different slope aspects and different steepnesses of the slope. So instead of looking at kind of like one simple slope like you do in Chablis and like sometimes you think of with the Cote d'Or, there's actually a lot of different pieces to it. You also, majorly, you have the rift of the Seune. So you have a major fault that creates the pathway for the Sone River that kind of flows through it. That's a result of the building of the Alps, like I told you about. But really what's happened, is I said, that a huge block dropped down. And when that block dropped down and then the river started flowing through it, it started filling up with sediment. So there's hundreds of meters of unconsolidated sediment from that. And that happens on the eastern border of the Cote d'Or. And that is actually where the Appalachian boundary is drawn. And there are not grapes grown Past that fault on that really deep alluvium, because that is considered to be not as prime, obviously not prime growing material compared to the slope itself. And then, with all of those combs, like I mentioned before, that are coming west to east, kind of cutting up the slope, they're also bringing a lot of other alluvial material onto the slope, basically in between the slopes. So, you're getting this mixture of where you have certain types of really hard bedrock with really thin soils that give a certain expression to the wine you have more marley limestone with deeper clay soils that give a certain expression you have these small dejection cones of alluvium coming from the west and then you also have this major major river and we call it a graben fill of sediments from the zone from the Bresse graben rift
0: so an example of a comb would be like the combe d'Arvo, which divides Chambol from flai hmm And then the combe grisar, which is by mm-hmm.
1: And
0: There's these breaks in the slope. And often I think about them as bringing air through. But mm-hmm. of course, you being a geologist, think about them as bringing soil through.
2: Yeah, sure. And I mean, it's a combination of all of those factors that's significant. It's bringing cold air, it's bringing different types of rocks, it's breaking up the slope, it's adding diversity to the aspects of the slope.
0: And it gets important because it turns out that some really good premier crews are right next to combs.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, especially in Gevre, the comb is very big, and so it's bringing material from really far away, and it actually is bringing in some silex So it's bringing in a more acidic component to the soil that you can actually see relatively high up on the slope. It's pretty impressive how high up on the slope you can find some of this alluvium. Um, And again, it's not that they're alluvial soils, it's that they have some sort of an alluvial component that also brings in more textural diversity that can be really beneficial for the soil.
0: Why would the alluvium be higher up on the slopes like that? What would have put it there?
2: Especially in Gevray, where the comb is a very big, significant comb, the alluvium that's high up on the slope is actually reflecting major flooding events. So, throughout even human history, but also more so in relatively recent geologic history, there are major flooding events that get recorded in the rock record. So, today we might not think of there being even a stream that runs through these combs, but during really dramatic weather events in geologic time, there can be a huge flooding event that will. Put one event's worth of sediment high up on the slope.
0: Once you get below the Cote d'Or, what's the difference between the Cote d'Or and the Cote Chalonet?
2: The major difference between the Cote d'Or and the Cote Chalonet is that you're basically at the convergence of two major faults and you're actually starting to bring in elements of the Massif Central. So the neatness of the slope gets lost a little bit. The topography changes a lot, as you can also see in the Maconay as well. The rocks themselves are changing a little bit. But the biggest difference, I would say, is that it, it's much messier than the coat door.
0: You referred to the Maconay, and I've noticed there that sometimes the soil is red, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's not. And so I imagine there's a fair amount of diversity.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a huge amount of diversity in the Macanay. And when I first started looking at it, I was a little bit overwhelmed by the diversity. But after spending a little bit of time there, what's really interesting about the Macanay is that what you're basically getting are these kind of mirror images of faults that are repeating themselves over and over again. The two rocks, so Salutre and Vergisson, are actually... Separated from each other, but they're identical in their geology. So the faulting in that area is causing a repetition of rock units over and over. And there's actually five examples just throughout really the area surrounding the Puys where you're getting this repeated geology. And a lot of the vineyards are actually on very, very similar soils, which is really impressive given how complex the region looks and how complex the geology looks that there is definitely something that's holding them all together. The red soil specifically, some of the soil is really red, and those actually tend to be some of the more calcareous soils, so the soils with more active calcium, and that just has to do with the type of rock itself is a limestone that had a significant iron component that it's giving to the soil.
0: So sometimes we hear about different parts of the machinae as bordering Beaujolais and thus being a little bit granitic, and is that true as well? or?
2: It's true in the sense that it is definitely bordering Beaujolais. I mean, you can stand in the Mecane and look out onto Santamore, But the terroirs themselves are really not on much granitic soil at all. There is a little bit of it. There's kind of a, a little sliver of it along the southern end. And the soils are very different there. But there's definitely been a segregation of what they're planting where.
0: Once we get to the Beaujolais, in the books it's often said, this is granite. But it seems like there's more than just granite there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the Beaujolais, there's definitely more of a complexity than just granite, although there is a lot of granite. There are definite alluvial sections, and there are kind of these really classic examples of schist or kind of metamorphosed andesite, which is just a type of igneous volcanic rock. And unfortunately, it's something that a lot of people call blue granite, which is not quite accurate but it does have this kind of bluish green color to it mostly in morgon and also along the côte de bruy
0: so is the northern rhone different than the southern rhone
2: yeah absolutely very different the geology is totally different the northern rhone is on these really steep very pure granitic slopes especially places like Cornas and san joseph you're getting all of those steep igneous rocks so steep granite slopes whereas the southern rhone is really more alluvial plains the
0: So something that tends to be as focused for you is hard rocks as a vector within geology so like limestone or granite
1: mm-hmm.
0: when those kind of rocks interact with vines what are characteristics that then become important in that conversation
2: The biggest conversation that I'm having right now, and it's kind of why I spend a lot of my time more so dealing with kind of hard rocks, dealing with directly residual soils, is that I I see over and over again that there is a textural component to the final wines that seems to bring itself out. And that's currently what I find most interesting. I think that the comparison between rocks on really shallow soils derived from the direct weathering of bedrock and those from transported materials, so more alluvial soils, I think that in terroir and with wine, those are two major differences that you can really see a textural result, a textural implication in the final wines. I think that that observation can be made by talented tasters, by skilled tasters, and it's being made over and over again by people in different parts of the wine world. And even though maybe it's a little bit backwards, it's almost like we need to understand that that relationship exists in order to fully understand how the vine is reacting differently to those two environments.
0: In some ways, it would make sense, right? If you had two peaches and one was really different than the other peach, then you would assume that there was some difference in how they were grown yeah. or where they were grown, right? Yeah. It does seem a little tricky, though, because... With wine, when someone says, well, this is different than that, and my assumption is that that's based on the soil, people come up with a lot of objections to that point of view in terms of Mm -hmm. like, well, where's your proof?
2: I see that, too. And, you know, when I kind of entered into the wine side of things, I was also really skeptical. To me, too, when I first heard it, it sounded like people were jumping to conclusions. And that worried me a little bit. And it really wasn't until I talked to a lot of different people in a lot of different places who were repeatedly coming to some of the very same conclusions without knowing what other people were saying uh, made me realize there was a significant conversation that was getting missed here. And it's also something that I think gets missed by the scientists who are starting to be interested in study terroir is that you have to hone in onto the things that people are thinking really hard about and not necessarily just look at the quality of wines and say, oh, well, all of these wines have high scores, therefore we're going to use them in our study. Or, you know, all of these vineyards are famous and they have different terroirs, so there's not a big difference. That's, that's different from looking at it from the perspective of really thoughtful wine professionals
0: So the issue can be that some of the geologists who have done work in this field aren't setting up the experiments in a way that would be helpful.
2: The work that's being done is is very young and very new. And I think that what they're doing is building a basis of really interesting studies. And with an area of research that's relatively new, it's hard to expect someone to come at it from the perspective of a professional taster. However, I th- think that it needs to get to a point where it is more approached from the wine side of things. We have to, to really understand what the relationships are, what the observations of people's perceptions of terroir are, in order to effectively test them. You know, words like persistence and grit versus power and finesse and fineness are all terms that do get repeated over and over.
0: So I feel like there's two different lenses there. There's the science lens where people are privileging induction instead of deduction. Mm -hmm. And then it sounds to me like you're using a lens that might be more associated with sociology or ethnography. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I think that there is value in finding a way for the science side of things to approach the subject from the understanding of the wine community. And so in order to do that, I think that there needs to be a good communal language of people who are making these observations in order to see them repeated in a statistically significant manner. So, you know, wines from deep clay soils is maybe one of the most recognized textural comparison that people are making over and over again. So wines on deep clay soils have a broadness to them. They have a broad rounded texture that's almost similar to the feeling of pottery clay in your hands. Like you can almost kind of feel that texture in the wine versus wines on really shallow soils, almost directly on the bedrock that have a much more linear straight texture to them. It's a huge difference in the texture of the wine and it's something that people see over and over again, but it's not necessarily something that a scientist who's not deeply involved in the wine community could get to right away.
0: The other pull of that would be, for me, a sandy soil can give like an airy wine.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So Absolutely. On that oh, spectrum. Lifted
2: lightness, yeah.
0: But the, it seems sort of like the problem, maybe, I don't hang in the geology circles a lot, <laughs> is that the geologists sort of think the wine people are kind of like pagans. Like, you know, <laughs> they're celebrating these rituals, but it's just irrelevant to uh, scientific research.
2: You know, I mean maybe some. I I would say that I've also been really impressed by uh really geologists like Wine and they love the idea. They're kind of bound by rules of logic, but really they are very supportive and excited about the connection. They're just going to be very kind of skeptical and logical about their steps to getting there. And I think that again it's that gap in communication between the way that people are talking to each other where it's kind of missing a step there. There's definitely a support and an interest for it. It's just that they haven't had the same experiences with wine that are difficult to kind of overcome.
0: One of the things you referred to earlier was the ability of soils to hold or regulate or bring back to the vine water. Mm -hmm. And do you think that that's a factor, especially when it comes to some of these textural expressions that you referred to?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely one of the major factors that makes one site unique from another is both the soil and the rock's ability to hold water, and both in a way that can be detrimental, it can hold too much water and the vine cannot be happy versus kind of a happy balance of being able to supply the vine with the right amount of water. And also the soil's ability to hold heat. So the way that the soil and the rocks themselves are actually going to Mitigate microclimate. So, for example, clay holds water. And when that water evaporates, it actually causes cooling. So, sometimes clay soils can actually be quite cool because of that evaporation. One thing that I've found, especially looking at terroirs from place to place, is that they all have kind of like a different limiting factor that changes what the most ideal terroir of that region is. And the limiting factor could be water. It could be, you know, disease pressure. Like I know in Sancerre, they tend to prefer slopes with aspects that give them a nice breeze and that get sun right away in the morning because disease pressure is so high that they need to be able to counteract that with kind of early morning drying of dew kind of things versus temperature. You know, maybe the limiting factor in the soil is going to be. If it's in a really hot region, maybe it's going to be a soil that allows things to stay cool. Or the opposite of that, if you're in a northerly region that doesn't get quite warm enough, there's going to be this push for soils that tend to retain heat. Whereas that sounds kind of obvious, it's actually a little bit contradictory when you're thinking about things like, oh, well, okay, so what's the best terroir? What's the best, what's the best soil type? What's the most needed? The difference is it's what's most important is going to be different depending on all of the factors that are going into play in that one location.
0: That's one of the reasons why you can't go to France and then come back to California and say, like, I got it figured out. This is Mm -hmm. what we need to be looking for. Yeah,
2: exactly. Because it's
0: part of a context.
2: Mm -hmm. All of those pieces are important. And especially, you know, if you can understand beyond saying, like. Heavy clay soils are good. let's just look for heavy clay soils or, or limestone soils are good. let's just look for limestone. Um, if you can understand, and this is a you know a communal effort that everyone's trying to figure out, but if you can understand why all of those factors are important and how they're interacting with other things, then you can start applying that in other places, especially if you can keep an open mind to what your unique needs are in each site
0: So what would be the limiting factors in other major wine regions of France? Like, if I were to look at Chablis, what's the major limiting factor?
2: Obviously temperature. So they have a really hard time with things getting very cold and with frost. But they also have a hard time with hail. And I've noticed that the aspects, the Grand Cru slope itself, I was there just a week or two after a major hailstorm. And it turns out that the direction that the hail usually comes from is, ends up protecting the Grand Cru slopes.
0: And what would be a limiting factor in Champagne?
2: Obviously, ripeness is an issue. They, they need to make sure that things can get ripe. But what I found more interesting was not just that they want to attain the correct amount of ripeness, but they want to do that over the longest period of time to give the most complexity. So they want to really stretch the ripening process so that they can actually have complexly interesting ripeness as opposed to doing that quickly and so their understanding there from my experience was more that the best slope aspects actually varied according to the temperature of that vintage on a colder year they were going to look for more south southern exposures because they really needed to push the amount of time it took to get things ripened Whereas on a warmer year, they're going to favor the spots that are just slightly cooler so that they can give more time to add into that complexity.
0: You mentioned before about vines struggling and how that can relate to quality or qualities. Mm -hmm. And so you said that with a certain amount of water, a vine's going to be happy. Let's say it wasn't happy. Let's say it was stressed out. What would happen?
2: Well, hopefully it would that kind of stress would trigger the vine to send its roots deeper in search of a more consistent supply of water. And so a lot of times bedrock will actually hold a lot of water as well and in a more consistent way. It's holding groundwater as opposed to rainwater, so you won't rely necessarily on it raining regularly in an area to provide consistent water if the roots are deep enough That vine can have a more consistent access to water and also to nutrients in times of drought.
0: What would be a mechanism that would cause textural change in the wine?
2: I think that it's a little difficult for me to answer that question at this point. I mean, you know, it could cause the ripening of the skins and the seeds and the stems is developing different types of tannins that have a different texture, but. There's definitely not, from what I've heard, an agreement on whether or not this texture of the wine is truly related to tannin texture or some other kind of salty texture or something else. I don't think that that has a set understanding yet.
0: Sometimes I have heard that microbes have a role to play as a communicator between vines and soil. What do you think about that?
2: Absolutely. And I think that that's another example for how complex this issue likely is. So one thing that I read over and over again that I I actually get quite tired of hearing is when the concept of minerality is dismissed, again, because of kind of a language barrier. So sure, there are some papers that were written that said that a vine cannot uptake minerals or elements from the soil and place them directly in the wine at a level at which we are tasting. So we're not directly tasting the minerals or the elements of the soil. I don't think that most geologists think that that means that minerality doesn't exist, and I don't think that that means that terroir does not exist. It just means that that one mechanism, that one pathway, isn't it. So really, it's about finding this more complex pathway of getting some sort of translation of the site, of the geology, of the climate, of the slope aspect into the final product of the wine. And I think that Microbes are a really great way to understand maybe how the geology could really be influencing this concept because different types of microbes may excel in different chemical environments of the soil that would be created by different types of rocks. And those microbes then could be interacting with the vine themselves in a different way that's producing a different end product.
0: We've talked about like what's there originally, but There seem to be a lot of inputs uh, into both soil and with water that happen in viticulture. So, you know, people rip soil and add things to it, or they add nutrients during a fermentation process, Mm -hmm. you know, that may have been deficient in the soil. So they'll add it to the wine, or they'll irrigate. And so what do those inputs do in the short term, and what do they do in the long term?
2: I would say the inputs of, you know, water and nutrients are kind of two separate concepts. I think that the water conversation is, when you break down all the aspects of terroir, the water conversation, you suddenly realize why it's so important. Um, and if terroir is being translated through the roots, interacting with the bedrock, it is logical that it would be very difficult to get a wine that expresses terroir if you're irrigating. because. If you're irrigating, you're irrigating right on the surface. And so the roots have no incentive to send their roots deeper and deeper and deeper. And so that's obviously also a question, if you're going to be comparing the terroirs of two different places, can you really make that comparison if someone's irrigating? Um, you could have the same conversation if people are sprinkling limestone or you know calcium carbonate throughout their vineyard. Are you going to get a a limestone expression of terroir? I don't really think so, but if you're putting in an input that potentially obscures the terroir, that's possible. I think, for me, it's more important that there's kind of a harmony between what the terroir is, like what it naturally lends itself to, and how it is then managed how the vineyard itself is managed and how the wine is made i recently had a really great tasting with david croix and he has a, a wine on alluvial soil that is called Sanvin. and he fought with this wine for years and years because he prefers wines that are more linear and strict and more of that kind of like hard bedrock quality and he really tried to guide this wine to it and it just never really got there. And when he finally kind of set back and let the vines do what they wanted to do in an alluvial soil and make the wine in a way that is going to be rounder and softer and easier, he finally did produce a really beautiful wine that represents that harmony. And, and I think that certain times, you know, wine is a business. It's a livelihood for a lot of people. You know, sometimes you have to amend soils and sometimes you have to irrigate your vines so that you don't lose your your living for the year, but I think that if that approach is coming from a harmonious way of understanding where the wine itself wants to be, then it's not so much a conversation of what is messing with the terroir or intruding into it.
0: For me, where things can often be on separate tracks is that the wine criticism often seems to be detached from Uh, Soil considerations, but have a lot of ramifications. So it seems to me that certain critics prefer certain soil types without realizing it Mm -hmm. and then privilege those wines in the scores.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Which is another way of sort of misapprehending the context Mm -hmm. by saying, like, this wine is better than this wine, where really the conversation is more like, I like deep clay.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I struggle to think of terroir as in terms of quality, although you can't deny that there is a a quality hierarchy in places like Burgundy, where they have clearly made a hierarchy of quality. Um, But I don't like that idea as much as I like the idea of embracing what a certain site can give and making it into the best version of itself, as opposed to just saying, you know, no matter what, if it's deep clay, it's going to be good. I mean, if you tried to make deep clay into a lean, ethereal, lifted wine, you know, I'm not a winemaker, of course, but in my opinion, you would probably end up with something that's quite disjointed and doesn't quite have a a true sense of its own personality. So I think that there is a technique that can be harnessed relative to different terroirs. And, And I think talking with lots of different Vineyard, they they have that sense too of learning their sites, learning each place, what it's trying to give.
0: So, do you see a connection between geology and sustainability or fertility?
2: Any vineyard that's on you know really steep granite slopes is going to be hard enough to farm in the first place, let alone try to do it organically or sustainably. And a lot of times, it's the people who are willing to put in that work and do it anyways who are making something really special from maybe those more difficult sites which leads back to that conversation of of microbes and how important microbes could be in translating terroir and again it's you have to think about the wines that you're talking about when you're trying to talk about terroir because if it's true that microbes are playing an integral role in translating the geology to the wine You can't really have that conversation if you're in a very chemically farmed vineyard that has obliterated the microbial life and the microbial diversity of the soil. It's just not the same conversation.
0: Verna Quigley is interested in the mix of rocks with soil, and she's interested in the mix of conversation about them. Thank you very much for being here today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Verna Quigley has a master's in geology and works as a consultant in the wine trade. All AllDrinkToThatPod.com That's I-L-L-DrinkToThat P-O-D dot com Which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening. This episode came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family who have helped countless writers and journalists learn more about Burgundy over the years. What would be a limiting factor in the Cote d'Or?
2: I think that that's something that's changing a little bit. I mean, usually the the limiting factor for Grand Cru sites is that kind of middle of the slope balance between there being clay and bedrock. But I think that as it The climate each year gets increasingly warmer every year. There's a lot more interest happening higher up on the slope where, again, it's that question of complexity. With slightly warmer temperatures, you're actually getting more complexity and seriousness from these slightly higher altitude slopes.